Thank you. Thank Pastor Moore and the folk here in Points Pass for the invitation uh, to this. This is the first time ever I've been in Points Pass, <coughs> never mind Points Pass Baptist, so it is indeed a privilege. Well, thank you for your welcome. And uh, as Pastor Moore said, we were in Singapore for nearly 20 years. Uh, we were in China as well as missionaries there. And then we started a church there uh, just about 10 years ago, uh, over 10 years ago now. And uh, then a couple of years ago, we came back for the children to finish school here. And we found ourselves up in Larne, in the mission hall there in Larne. And your pastor has been there to speak for us just, I think, last summer, August, was it? July, August. He was there sharing the Word of God, and he's coming back, I think, in a couple of months' time, God willing. Well, we're going to look at the book of Esther this week. It's a very helpful book to study at this time when our thoughts are particularly thinking about the Jewish people and how they are under attack, it seems, for the umpteenth time. And our newspapers, our news broadcasts are constantly referring to the land of Israel. And uh, the book of Esther is a book that deals with the Jews under attack and how God delivered them in their day of trouble. Just going to read chapter 1 this morning, Esther chapter 1. It says, Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, this is Ahasuerus, which reigned from India even unto Ethiopia, over a hundred and seven and twenty provinces. So this was no tin pot dictator of a tiny banana republic. This was a man who ruled from North Africa to India and most of the Middle East as well. The Persian Empire, which this man Ahasuerus, sometimes called Xerxes I, inherited from his father, was a, not just a great empire, but was the largest empire the world had ever seen to this point in history. It says that in those days, verse 2, when the king Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Sushan the palace. In the third year of his reign, he made a feast unto all his princes and his servants, the power of Persia and Media, the nobles and princes of the provinces being before him. When he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the honor of his excellent majesty many days, even a hundred and fourscore days. And when these days were expired, the king made a feast unto all the people that were present in Shushan the palace, both unto great and small, seven days, in the court of the garden of the king's palace, which were white, green, and blue hangings, fastened with cords of fine linen and purple, to silver rings and pillars of marble, the beds were of gold and silver upon a pavement of red and blue and white and black marble. And they gave them drink in vessels of gold, the vessels being diverse one from another, and royal wine in abundance according to the state of the king. The drinking was according to the law. None did compel, 
For so the king had appointed to all the officers of his house, that they should do according to every man's pleasure. Also Vashti the queen made a feast for the women in the royal house, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. And on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Bitha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zithar, and Carcass, the seven chamberlains that served in the presence of Ahasuerus the king, to bring Vashti the queen before the king with the crown royal, to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was fair to look on. But the queen Vashti refused to come at the king's commandment by his chamberlains. Therefore was the king very wroth, and his anger burned in him. Then the king said to the wise men which knew the times, for so was the king's manner toward all that knew law and judgment. And the next unto him was Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Marius, Marcina, and Memukan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, which saw the king's face and which sat the first in the kingdom. What shall we do unto the queen Vashti according to law, because she hath not performed the commandment of the king Ahasuerus by the chamberlains? Memucan answered before the king and the princes, Vashti the queen hath not done wrong to the king only, but also to the princes and to all the people that are in the provinces of the king Ahasuerus. For this deed of the queen shall come abroad unto all women, so that they shall despise their husbands in their eyes, when it shall be reported. The king Ahasuerus commanded Vashti, the queen to be brought in before him, but she came not. Likewise shall the ladies of Persia and Media say this unto all the king's princes, which have heard of the deed of the queen. There shall arise too much contempt and wrath. If it please the king, let there go a royal commandment from him. Let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, that it be not altered that Vashti come no more before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal estate unto another that is better than she. And when the king's decree, which he shall make, shall be published throughout all his empire, for it is great, all the wives shall give to their husbands honor, both the great and small. And the saying pleased the king and the princes, the king did according to the word of Memucan. For he sent letters into all the king's provinces, into every province according to the writing thereof, and to every people after their language, that every man should bear rule in his own house, and that it should be published according to the language of every people. Amen. And God will bless the reading of his word. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that we have this inspired record, a record that's laid down by God himself so that we can study, we can understand, and we can learn from. We pray that you would take the word of God and apply it to all of our lives. 
We pray for this church. May it be a church that knows the word of God. That walks in the word of God. And may each one here this morning say, Lord, speak to me individually. Touch my life. Touch my heart. Make me more like the Lord Jesus Christ. For we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Now, the book of Esther is a book, some have called it like an unsigned painting. Because God's name is not mentioned in the book. And many commentators, indeed most commentators, believe that the primary reason why the name of God doesn't appear is because God is working in the background. And he wants you to discern his fingerprints working through the events and the people and the circumstances. And by and large, that's how God works in most of our lives, in our day-to-day lives, through what we call providence. Now, the word providence is from a Latin or two Latin words, pro, meaning before, and the word video or the verb video, meaning to see. And the idea of the word providence is God sees before what is going to happen and works through the circumstances and through the individuals to accomplish his will. And it's only when you look back with hindsight that you see the fingerprints of God in your life and in your circumstances. And each one of us in this room can testify, I have seen the hand of God working in my family, working in my life through providence. Now, if you read this book very carefully, you'll see the fingerprints of God, the hand of the unseen God at work in orchestrating and guiding and directing the affairs that go on here. And ultimately, God will bring this woman, Esther, to the throne. And through her, Even though she's a weak vessel, even though in many ways she is not a spiritual giant. And we'll see that when we meet her in the next few chapters. There's not an awful lot to admire about her in the early chapters of the book of Esther. But ultimately, you'll see God at work using Esther as his instrument to deliver the Jewish people and to further... God's great redemptive plan through Israel, through the Messiah, and ultimately to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's really what you're going to see when you look at the book of Esther with biblical eyes, with Christ-centered eyes, as you study it this week. Now, Ahasuerus, as I said, was no tin pot dictator. He inherited a great kingdom from his father. And like Many young men taking over from a great father, a family business or a family kingdom, Ahasuerus has to make an impact because he knows he's going to be compared to his father, a man, Darius the Great. What he decides to do to unite his empire and to impress those who are under him, he decides to show off his wealth. And his power. And he does it by verse 4 
gathering all the great crowd of rulers from all over the empire. Now remember, these people live, in many cases, hundreds of miles away. They speak different languages. There's not much to unite them. It's easy for them to rebel. So this man has to lay down a marker. And he does it like many of the showbiz of the world do. They have a great party. And they have the gold and the glitter and the glamour. The show business. They gather them together. And this party is no ordinary party. Because we read that it lasts for six months. Imagine. Eating and drinking. And some of the gold and silver and the wealth that's unfolded there is recalled or put down in verse 6. And you can see in the golden vessels and the golden chairs. And what he wants everybody to know is how great I am. How powerful I am. And what he's really trying to get across to all these rulers is don't. Don't try to rebel against me. Don't test me. Because I am a great king. And I am a powerful king. And I am a man of substance. And no doubt he hoped that this opulence and this wealth and this glamour would buy loyalty, would create even a fear in those who would come. And that's the way the world works, isn't it? That's how they try to impress us, with the outward. And even Christians can be drawn into being impressed by the so-called stars of this world, the movie stars, the sports stars, The business stars. And all these things they use to draw you in and attract you and seduce you into not just following them, but also fearing them. If I was to ask you a question this morning, who is Ahasuerus to you? What does the Persian Empire mean to you? I suspect for many of us, maybe... Most of us, the names are not really familiar. And the empire is just a a name you may have heard at school in passing, but means nothing to us. And it's a reminder of the transient nature of the stars of this world. They come and they go, don't they? And the empires come and they go. Egypt, Babylon... Medo-Persia, Alexander the Great and his empire, the Romans, it came and it went. And the superstars of today are forgotten about tomorrow. Just take the football teams. Who remembers who was playing in this team 10, 15 years ago? Your favorite team, and if we're honest, we've forgotten, haven't we? Because who's the great star today is very quickly replaced by another one tomorrow. What you see when you read the history of mankind is the transient nature of it, the temporal nature of it. And I say this to you, don't get too impressed. In fact, don't get impressed at all with the world's stars. Now, the Persian culture, verse 9, we discover, Vashti had a separate feast. And according to the Persian culture, 
The men and the women ate separately. Maybe that's a good thing, I don't know. But the men and the women ate separately. I've been to churches in Eastern Europe and the men and the women sit separately. On one side you have the ladies all sitting and on the other side the men. I'm not recommending that either, but it's an interesting phenomenon. And Vashti, she had a feast for the ladies. And we're told that the men's feast, the drink was flowing. Anytime the alcohol's flowing, there's trouble, isn't there? And anytime the booze is being indulged in, invariably people start to make a fool of themselves, start to lose control of themselves. You don't need me to explain that to you. We have a little expression over here, the demon drink, don't we? I'm sure you've heard it. And it's so true. And if you're a child of God, keep away from the drink. Not do you any good. I was doing a study on the book of Genesis with our church and it was, just struck me as I was reading it. The first two references of alcohol and the believer were Noah and Lot. And if you read those two incidences, they certainly would not commend the booze to the child of God. And I just say that in passing. And the drink's flowing here. And Ahasuerus, he's lost control of his thinking. And we're told he commands that the queen is brought in to all this great gathering of men. And in verse 11 it says she was to come with the crown royal. Now some think that she was commanded to come with only the crown royal, wearing nothing but the crown, naked. That could well have been what Ahasuerus was asking her to do. And she was to come in and it wasn't so that they could see her royal splendor as the king's wife, or to hear her wisdom and see her humility and see her modesty or anything like that. To be impressed by her as a godly wife? No. Notice what it says. To show the people and the princess her beauty. It was just something to show her off. She was the show, show bride for this tin pot dictator, drunken dictator, Ahasuerus. And suddenly there's a problem. Because it says in verse 12, but, oh dear, the drink's flowing, the crowd's there of all the great and the good, the gold's there, the silver's there, the marble's there, all the powerful men of the whole empire are there. And this king, young king, who wants to impress everybody, he orders his wife to come in to demonstrate how great he is. But notice what happens. But the queen, Vashti, refused. Oh dear. The king, who boasts that he's the king of kings on the earth, who's the ruler of the great Persian empire, can't even get his wife to obey him. What humiliation. 
At the very point that he's gathered all these people to impress how strong he is, how powerful he is, how he, he must not be questioned, how he must be obeyed, he calls his wife in and before them all she disobeys him. How empty are men. How vacuous is the empire of the ungodly. And how does the king react? Verse 12. Therefore was the king very wroth, and his anger burned within him. The fact that there were so many there to witness his humiliation made him even angrier. And the fact that he was drunk for seven days and had been drinking for six months before the seven days just added to the humiliation, just multiplied his anger. And you can see him bright red with the booze and now even bright redder with the humiliation and the anger of this situation. And his anger outpours before them all and he calls all his so-called wise men to come and help him to sort out this terrible mess. And what you're seeing here is two things in Ahasuerus. Number one, he can't govern his wife. That's humiliating. And number two, he can't govern himself, can't control himself, can't even think for himself to deal with this problem. And that's the world without God. They can't control others and they can't control themselves. It's how they live. Just put them in the right circumstances. And despite all the boasting about their power and their control and their wealth and their material blessings that they possess, they're so weak underneath. And let me say this in passing. Man is so weak and fragile. And as you leave this church this morning and go into points past, you'll see people strutting around. And if you were to say, uh, what do you think about God? They'll tell you, I have no time for God. No thought about God. And they're out walking their dogs and they're out doing their jogging around and they're out living life and living for the weekend. But man is a very fragile creature. Just takes a little virus you can't see. It'll take him out of this world in 24 hours. Isn't that right? They get up in the morning boasting in his wealth and boasting in his physical health. And by sunset, he's gone. And youth is no barrier to God stepping in and removing someone just like that. And Ahasuerus is a classic illustration that all the trappings of wealth don't preserve you. Don't give you real strength. Don't give you character. And here he is after six months drinking. Boasting and showing off. And pouring out the gold and the silver and the precious things to impress everybody. He now looks a mess. So the question is, what to do? The alcohol has led to anger. And now his anger is going to get him into trouble. 
And then pride will keep him there. Because he won't be able to back down. He calls for these men. These ungodly men. And one of the problems is this. If you have ungodly friends and counselors. There will always be one. Maybe more than one. That the devil will have there to give you the wrong advice. And you're going to discover in the next chapter that he's going to act in anger and pride because of the advice of a man called Memucan. But later on he's going to regret it. But if you hang around with the Memucans of this world, they'll always lead you astray. They'll all ultimately cost you. There will always be a Memucan who, who will seek to take advantage of you. Who won't be a true friend. Memucan comes to him and he convinces the king that the situation is far more serious than it first appears. And of course he argues from the greater to the lesser. He says if everybody hears that Vashti won't obey her husband then all the women of Persia won't obey their husbands. If the queen, the greatest woman in the empire, is disobedient, how can we expect the ordinary women to be obedient to their husbands? And his solution is this. He says in verse 19, get rid of her. Let Vashti come no more. Divorce her. Throw her out of the royal marriage. And he says, let her royal estate be given unto another that is better than her. Now, this suggestion or this piece of counsel is not biblical advice. For the Bible has no such grounds for divorce, if it even has any. And you can argue about that yourself. But if we accept that the Bible has grounds for divorce, and I believe there are limited exceptions. This certainly doesn't fall within the limited exception. And this man is telling this tyrant, this drunken tyrant, this humiliated, angered tyrant, just throw her out. And Ahasuerus, without thinking it through, without letting himself sober up. It says, verse 21, And the same pleased the king. And the princess, and the king did according to the word of Memucan. Now Vashti may weep and say, It's not fair that I should be treated this way. It's not fair that for not obeying the drunken commandment of a tyrant who wasn't doing what he should be doing in protecting my modesty in the culture of Persia, that I have to face this situation in losing my, my crown and losing my position, indeed maybe even losing her life, because the Bible doesn't speak about what happens to her after this. She may say that it's not fair. 
But the Bible tells us, doesn't it? The way of the transgressors is hard. It's hard. You live for the transgressors. You marry the transgressors. And you'll discover they're ruthless. And they're cold. And they're hard people. If you make a man like a Hashuerish, your husband, then expect him to act like one. The leopard doesn't change his spots without the grace of God. And maybe I say this in passing to someone who's seeking a life partner. Don't marry an Ahasuerus. You don't find a godly spouse, a patient, a wise, a generous, a forgiving person in the character of a man like Ahasuerus. And Vashti is discovering that sinful men are harsh and cold. And of course, it works the other way as well. But it is interesting, just in passing, to notice in verse 20. that says, when the king's decree which he shall make be published throughout all his empire, for it is great, all the wives shall give to their husbands honor, both to great and small. Isn't it interesting that they recognize, even these ungodly people, that the example of those in authority has an impact on others who are subject to that authority. You know, it's often you hear today that politicians and leaders have their private life and what they do in their private life has no impact. And even Christians are seduced by that argument. Sometimes you hear even people say, well, it's my sin. I, I sin by myself, but it has no impact upon my family. It, it's my life. Oh, it does have an impact. I mentioned earlier we were looking through the book of Genesis in our Bible study in Lorne and struck me what an impact Lot had on his family. God says of Abraham, I know him that he will command his home to do right. But you couldn't say the same of Lot. Look at the example Lot had on his wife, on his sons-in-law, that when he tried to witness to them, when Sodom was about to be destroyed, it says he appeared to them as one that mocked. They thought he was a fool. He had no testimony. And his two daughters, unmarried daughters, were like the daughters of Sodom in their attitude and actions after they were left Sodom and Gomorrah. Oh, so the sins of an individual have an impact on others. The example of those, particularly in authority, particularly in positions of authority, whether it be in the home, the church, or the wider society, it has an impact. And even these ungodly people recognize it. Now, what is going to happen next? Well, you'll have to come back tonight to discover what's going to happen next. Verse 22, the letters go out and the historians tell us that the Persians invented the first postal system. Probably they're better than our royal meal. So you wait about six months to get a Christmas card, wouldn't you? You might as well send them for next year. Many of these cards. 
by the time the royal meal gets them to you. Hope there's no postman here today. Be offended after. But the Persians had an incredible postal system. And it was said every 20 miles there was a supply station where the horses were drawn and they would get information all around the empire in, in just a matter of hours. And the king, he signs this decree and it's sent out to every corner of the empire. And before he has time to evaluate what he's about to do, to think through, let the drink wear off, sober up, it's gone. The decision's made. And under the laws of the Medo-Persians is irreversible. And Vashti's doom is sealed in terms of her position as the queen. But what's the real lesson in this story? Who's the real hero in this story? It's certainly not Ahasuerus. It's certainly not Memucan or even Vashti. Because the real hero in this story you're going to discover is upwards, not horizontal. God's going to use this. God's going to be at work. And don't fall into the trap when you read Esther chapter 1 of saying, where's God? Is God asleep? Is God unconcerned about what's going on in this kingdom of Ahasuerus? And you know, we look around our country and you look around points past, maybe look around your family circle and you see the mess, you see the trouble, you see sinners getting worse and worse and going darker and darker and going deeper and deeper into sin and you say, where's God? Don't make the mistake like many did in Ahasuerus' day of saying, God's asleep. God's forgotten. God's not involved. Let me tell you, God's always at work. Always at work. And when you come to the end of this book, you'll discover that he was at work all the time. Leading, guiding, directing. Not at the front, but in the shadows, working through providence to accomplish his will in this great story. A vacancy has now arisen for a new queen. Coincidence? Luck? Now, God's at work. And he knows who the new queen is going to be before she knows. And he knows how her life will unfold when she becomes the queen before she does. And he knows all about a guy called Haman. What Haman will try to do. And God has it all in his plan here. You just don't see it yet. Because you and I can't think like him. We can't process the data like him. He says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. 
And what the book of Esther is just saying to you and I is, keep quiet. God's at work. When we were in Singapore, all the churches in Singapore, not just our church, when they begin their service, they all sing a verse from the book of Habakkuk. And it really it goes like this. It says, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth, not just some of the earth, keep silent. And the idea of that verse is God's always on his throne. God's always at work. And you come to worship, keep your mouth closed. You're not here to advise him. You're not here to counsel him. You're not here to even warn him about what's going on. He knows. He has it all under control. What you see going on in Israel today, and what you see going on in Points Pass, in Stormont, in the United Kingdom, and on this island, don't panic. Don't lose control of yourself. Don't say, what, what's going on? If someone doesn't intervene soon, it's, it, there's all kinds of problems going to unfold. No, no, your job is to be still and know that I am God. To trust that the God who works in the shadows in Esther's day through the hand of providence is still at work today. Hasn't grown cold, hasn't become indifferent. And the reason we have the book of Revelation is to tell you and I, God knows exactly what he's doing. And how does this book begin? In the beginning, what? Man? No. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. Where's man? doesn't appear until the sixth day. In fact, he's a passive recipient of God's work. He's incidental almost to the great drama of Genesis chapter 1. And how does this book end? God decides in heaven. And the last trump. And who appears? The Lord Jesus Christ. He comes to right every wrong. He comes to reign and to rule. He comes, we're told, to rule with a rod of iron. Oh, don't be panicking. And as we study the book of Esther this week, you'll see God's at work in her day, even through weak and in many ways worldly vessels. Because Mordecai and Esther are far from godly examples. Carnal believers. But God's at work. And you know, doubtless the hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of Jews who lived in the Persian Empire were oblivious to what was going on. Maybe they chatted in the coffee shops of Persia. Gossip. Did you hear about Vashti? Strange what went on there. Never knowing, never recognizing that what was happening, God was working to create a vacancy and working to bring a young girl into that vacancy. 
because God had a purpose and God had a plan. And the book of Esther, you must see the story behind the story. And in your life, you must recognize the story behind your story, which is the hand of God working behind the scenes. And although we may lose sight of God, and certainly Esther and Mordecai and many of the Jews like them had lost sight of God, God hasn't lost sight of us. Isn't that encouraging to us living in this country? A country where there was a church in every village, every town, every street corner of the city. A country that there's Bible verses hammered up in telegraph poles and more tracts given out probably than in any other part of Europe. We now have these streaming services broadcasting from this country almost week by week, midweek by midweek, and it's tempting to think, Our country has forgotten God, and God's forgotten our country. And our heritage is being besmirched and being ignored. Well, the book of Esther is going to tell us. Now God sees. God's still at work. And then you'll become, at the end of this week, you'll be able to look at the story of Esther and say, Ah, now I get it. Now I get it. The hand of God in my story, in my family, in my church, in my village, in my country. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for even these introductory remarks that we see the fingerprints of God in the story of Esther and Mordecai and Ahasuerus and God's people down in Persia. And although they didn't see it, we are looking back with the hindsight of history and we can say, we can see it. And because we can see it in their story, we can see it in our story. That God's at work. He's at work in our community. He's at work in our family. And we thank God there's even souls being saved. Even in this church. There's people here this morning who just a week ago, we're on their way to a lost eternity. Are now on their way to heaven. They're now seeing the fingerprints of God in their story. Bless each one with your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.